Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there, folks. You're listening to the New Books Network, and this is the Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery Podcast. My name's Lucas Rickert. I'm one of the regular hosts on this podcast, and uh, I just wanted to give a warm welcome to everyone listening out there. We're talking about medical marijuana today, and uh, so let me introduce you to Dr. Michelle Newhart. Michelle is a trained sociologist, uh, and she's here to talk about her new book called The Medicalization of Marijuana, Legitimacy, Stigma, and the Patient Experience, published by Rutledge just this year, and it was co-authored with William Dolphin. Michelle, it's great to have you here. I guess we've been trying to set this up for a couple of months, and so I'm thrilled to finally talk to you about your book today. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, first off, uh, congrats on the book award. Uh, I just heard that uh, your book uh, won the Donald Light Award for the Applied or Public Practice of Medical Sociology. That's super awesome. Yeah, we were beyond thrilled to find out that we um, won this award. In many ways, it was sort of the highest aspiration I could have for this book. So it was, uh, you know, terrific. And um, it's from the medical sociology section of the American Sociological Association. And um, it's given out every other year for a book. And we, we really also just see it as being a not only is it personally rewarding, but it is great to see the topic of medical cannabis recognized as a legitimate medical sociology topic. Absolutely. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit. Um, Can you maybe just fill us in about uh, your backstory and what brought you to this topic? Uh, How you got interested in studying medical marijuana? Sure. Well, um, it's rather... Rather a long path. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I was a sociology major as an undergraduate. And after I finished my undergraduate degree, I um, ended up working in publishing. And uh, I first worked at an academic press, and then I ended up moving to California. And I literally answered an ad in the weekly newspaper. This is back in the very late 1990s. And um, I found a path that I had no idea I would be on for the next uh, 20 years of my life. But um, it ended up being for one of the foremost uh, marijuana activists in the U.S., Ed Rosenthal, who had written the very first book ever published about um, cultivating marijuana in the 1970s. It had actually been reviewed by the New York Times favorably in the 1970s. And um, he uh, he was an owner, author of a small publishing company in the Bay Area. And 
Um, when I was interviewing for that job, of course, it was only a few years after the first medical marijuana proposition had passed in the state of California, right. um, Prop 215, which passed in 1996. And um, so when I went to interview for him, uh, they, the ad had said nothing about the subject matter. It had just advertised that it was publishing. And so before I came in for an in-person interview, they said, well, we, you know, we do books on all of these topics. Uh, so, um, in case you want to bow out, you know, and, uh, I, you know, as someone with a sociology background, I couldn't resist. I mean, it was sure. just, um, it was an entree into a world that's largely invisible and hidden. And, um, and so, you know, I had to at least go to the interview and I ended up getting hired and I worked for him through his federal trial. Um, and uh, for the next almost, almost decade, I worked uh, for him. And that was a whole other kind of sociological education. It was like, in many ways, it was like doing field work. I got to see a lot of things um, that had been um, not something you could easily um, just decide you were going to go and research, maybe. No um, and um, so, and, and I learned a lot about the issue. Um, I wasn't particularly, um, I wasn't particularly for or against marijuana before that, or particularly interested in it. I had been kind of a pretty straight, straight overachiever kind of kid. And um, in my undergrad, it had not been a topic I had been particularly interested in. I was more interested in things that were more on the religion and cultural side of things. And um, but I think I went through an experience that a lot of people go through when they become interested in this issue, in that there's a historically dominant narrative of the last several decades that tells you a certain story about where where cannabis fits in. Um, to our society and culture. And, um, and then if you start digging in and learning stuff about it, it's like, wait a minute, what is going on? Um, how many people can be arrested? And uh, it, it's re very eye-opening. And um, so it was a certain type of education to have had that, that job. And I won't lie. There were times, you know, that was early days. And there were times I was very worried that choosing to do that would mean I was forever unemployable. Um, yeah. You know, I didn't know, how, uh, even though my job there was as a book editor, which was, you know, my, is my second career uh, that I had uh, um, pursued after, after undergrad. And, um, and when I, w when I decided to go to graduate school, I thought I was leaving all of that behind. I thought I was going to go back and do things that were about other subjects. <laughs> and, and I went to graduate school in Colorado. <laughs> and so, of course, you know, the timing of that was, you know, the irony is not lost on me. So um, in the in the book uh, intro, I joke that, you know, marijuana was following me around. Um, it was uh, it was suddenly everywhere around me. Um, during, uh, you know, the later part of my grad school career. 
And I kind of went through a summer of reckoning where it was just, uh, I had been on um, in medical sociology as my interest, and I'd been doing things that were about complementary and alternative medicine and about how um, people decided to use certain types of nutritional supplements and how they decided whether they worked or not. Right. And, you know, I already had all of this background and history and insight uh, related to the topic of cannabis where, um, you know, I wasn't a naive, uh, um, person at that point when it came to, um, uh, knowing a lot about the topic. So, I, it occurred to me that what I'd been studying was actually very adjacent to <laughs> the the same questions about how people were using cannabis um, medically. You know, how were they choosing to use it? Um, how were they deciding if it was effective or not? Uh, and so I ended up deciding to pursue that for my dissertation work. And um, it was it ended up being a really fascinating time in Colorado to be investigating the, this topic. Um, the, it was a very specific moment in time where everything in the state related to it was in an expansion mode. All of the policymakers uh, on the policymaker side were struggling to catch up to where you know, to, to create rules around yeah. things that were just happening. And so there were a lot of analogies to the wild West and these kind of, you know, the green rush and all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> and, um, I mean, to their credit, I feel that, you know, it had a very interesting dynamic for the, for the legislators and those making policy there. Um, and, uh, I felt like they, you know, they made a, an amazing effort to try to uh, create something that had legitimacy, um, you know, but there were also things that, that still felt very about how things often work in that world where, I mean, it was, it was a clash of a lot of different cultural um, elements at the same time. And there were a lot of laws that got put into effect that um, we're given very short windows of time for people to be in compliance. And so, um, there was a lot going on that the only way you could really find out what was going on was to actually be on the ground talking to people. There was, you know, it was very hard to find anything, uh, written down that could kind of capture what was happening on the ground at the time. And, um, I stopped, uh, my research right before the, um, state passed adult legalization. So it was this, it was really that window of time when it exploded in the state. I mean, the program went from its first nine years of operation of having 5,000 patients in their state registry to within a year at having 125,000. So, uh, the, you know, um, it just thinking about it from the perspective of like any program that would expand on that level and the growing pains involved um, you know, is, uh, is a pretty interesting thing to, to witness. And then it had all of these extra layers to it. So I looked at, um, patients who were, um, at midlife or older and, uh, examined their experiences of interacting with that system. Mm. And, uh, so the book follows a trajectory, um, that basically walks through the experience in the order that a patient would experience it. So 
uh, kind of the decision points that patients face. So for, you know, it starts with in trying to decide whether it's um, something that you want to try um, and how do you try it? Do you first get a license and then try it or do you try it, decide if it works and then, you know, get your name on a list by getting a license? Um, and uh, and then through, through all of the steps after that. So, you know, deciding how to get a supply, um, deciding um, how to, uh, what form to use and how much to use and whether it's effective or not, um, deciding who to talk to about it and who to tell about it. And, um, anyway, I think, um, yeah, the, the overall, uh, goal was, was very self-consciously to create a book that was about medical cannabis that placed it in the framework of medical sociology not criminology or deviance or any of the other, you know, law or a lot of the ways that it has is typically framed and to um, begin to theorize in that space about how it fits in with theories about how people use medicine. And um, so uh, the award was a real, uh, really exciting because that felt like a um, it had satisfied that goal. <laughs> Well, I kind of understand why it would um, obviously win an award like this, considering it's so richly sketched, um, the policy elements that you were talking about just now, but also showcased uh, the, the patient experience so well. Uh, and, you know, it's deeply analytical um, for all the readers out there, but you know, uh, and all the listeners out there, but it's also... Um, readable too, which is something that that grabbed me. Um, you talked a lot about the debates that were going on uh, in Colorado that kind of sparked your interest and and got you thinking uh, during your research. Obviously, there's t- a debate right now. Uh, it's not like the debate has gone away at all. No. In fact, it's kind of it's been ramping up um, in the U.S. Um, and elsewhere, um, obviously. Um, I suppose I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about how uh, this book of yours sort of contributes to some of the, the key discussions that are going on right now. Because um, you had your boots on the ground in Colorado. Um, you got to speak with all these different people. I suppose I'm wondering about how, you know, what lessons we should take away. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I continue to follow this work with, you know, great interest. I think it's only become a more interesting issue. And I, um, I advocate for other social scientists to, uh, do work in this area. I really feel like it is a natural experiment that's underway in our society. Sure. And um, right now, most of the research is either research that's taking place um, from a clinical perspective or that is within the industry itself. And there's an absence of at least, uh, I think, the level of response that this should have from the social sciences, Hmm. because 
it is a it's about cultural categories and it's about stigma and it's about and it it has all kinds of lessons to mm-hmm. uh, to impart to us about how these things work. Uh, I would I, I know I'm a little off track from your initial question about how it informs no. policy, but I would also no. say that if you want to understand how alternative facts work, hmm. um, you, you you should be interested in looking at the topic of marijuana. <laughs> um, it is a great case study of how those things work. um, It's also an excellent case of how you reduce or remove stigma. Um, So I think it has a lot to offer in the area of thinking about how things become less stigmatized or how you remove a stigma for something that has been stigmatized. It's fascinating. I, uh, you know, it, it just makes me think that, you know, you said earlier, um, you, know, you thought maybe you as a researcher were going to be stigmatized uh, because you were studying this. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, as a private behavior, um, it largely, you know, it's largely a private behavior or has been. And um, so at one point, I know it's a little provocative to say, but I said, you know, I don't think cannabis use actually is the stigma. I think it's public. I think it's public advocacy for it. I think it's talking about it because how else are you affiliated with it? I mean, part of the stigma is just, you know, being, um, being willing to, to talk about it in a way that doesn't fit the narrative, uh, that we've had that's been maintained by authority over the last several decades. And so that applies to anybody who gets anywhere near it, whether you're a researcher, whether you are a, uh, working in a medical profession. Um, there are many ways that you can be connected to this issue and it has nothing to do whether you're actually using it, not using it, advocating for using it or not. Um, it's just that you are not following the, uh, narrative. Yeah. So along those lines, uh, in the school of pharmacy where I teach, uh, you know, I have documents that go back to uh, the 1910s and the 1920s where uh, pharmacists were talking about cannabis. Um, And so I decided that it was useful to sort of create an exhibit around some of that, so that earlier discussion, so that people who are doing sort of basic research on uh, the endocannabinoid system uh, or CBD now don't feel like they're so much out on an island, if you will, that, you know, there was a time when it was legitimate to be talking around cannabis as a medicine in sort of the health professions. But that's that just, sounds great. that's just, uh, you know, just a way of, you know, trying to illuminate uh, some pharmacists, if you will. Um, I, I But I want to turn back to your book, which um, I want to make sure that listeners there have a sense of sort of the the overall structure of the book, what you're trying to to actually put forward in the book. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you you put it together and sort of the the skeleton of it, if you will? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the book is a um, is really a revision of dissertation research. 
So, you know, a dissertation is an odd piece of writing, as I'm sure, you know, mid- yeah. listeners are familiar. I'm sure you're familiar. Um, or um, it, it isn't really written in the same way that you write a book. And so the book, uh, you know, um, William Dolphin, who is uh, my husband um, and my co-author on the book version, you know, we revised it to to follow a better book format. But essentially it's qualitative research. So it was interviews with patients who were over 30 years of age throughout the state of Colorado. And then, um, as I mentioned, it was very hard to get current information about many developments. So I did a set of uh, key interviews that were with people who uh, interacted with lots of patients to get that perspective and also to um, make sure I was getting comprehensive information from my interviews with individual patients mm. um, because they sometimes had insights on trends among patients that could help me see if I had gaps. And um, and then I also did lots of observation. So I went to lots of political organizing events and patient advocacy events and um, listened to kind of the... Uh, the way that uh, the uh, position of patients was being um, articulated at that point in time to try to um, understand where some of these narrative pieces that maybe individuals picked up often are, you know, part of a larger cultural narrative. And so like how, you know, where, where were people getting this information? And, um, you know, that part was very interesting. I mean, choosing to focus on patients I mean, patients are a protected class, and so that's a confidential aspect of your identity. And um, a lot of these um, public public events related to patients may have had patients at them, but they were not necessarily there as patients. They might be there as activists, or um, they may be there because they were participating in the industry. And a lot of these meetings had to do with setting the rules for the industry. Um, so it, it became very interesting to me to think about, well, where, where are the patients and how do they feel about some of these things that are being decided uh, for yeah. them, you know, in these, in these forums? And um, I went to s- several hearings as well that had to do with making decisions at the state level. Um, so um, that that was, you know, um, the the interviews were great. I mean, what what I found was that uh, patients really wanted to have a voice. They wanted to t- they wanted to talk, and a lot of that was, you know. They were they were seeking legitimacy. They were interested in legitimacy. Um, they were uh, so they were eager to tell their story in a forum in which they felt like they were contributing to that goal. Yeah. Um, so patients were very forthright in their in their stories and spent you know gave me a generous amount of their time and I'm very thankful to all of them, uh, everyone who you know was so helpful to me during um, my research collection and. Um, and then the book is really set up, as I said, it's set up to to kind of follow the the arc that a patient follows. And so in, in that respect, the, you know, it starts with a couple of chapters that have to do with um, both the cultural history and the history of policy related to cannabis um, to give a sense of sort of how we got to the point where um, this research takes place. 
And obviously those could take up entire books on their own, but it just tries to give a good sketch of, of how that, that piece works. And especially about drug scheduling and the importance of drug scheduling and understanding the medical cannabis issue, um, because um, marijuana remains a schedule one drug and at the federal level. Mm-hmm. And um, the uh, main criteria by which it remains in that category is the uh, insistence by the federal government that there is no legitimate medical use of cannabis. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, this is a, this is an important <laughs> contention and um, you know, there's ongoing, there's always been con- uh, ever since the modern drug law in the 1970 um, under the controlled substances act established scheduling, there have been contests and it was meant to be a tentative scheduling, but of course it's, it's endured over this entire period of time and resisted all contests to change it. So um, that is a part of the story of, of medical cannabis. Um, you know, the current medical cannabis policies aren't even the first attempt to have medical cannabis that started in the seventies and a bunch of States adopted it, but it, it never was uh, operational because it relied on, supply from the federal government that they, that was never forthcoming. So, Mm -hmm. um, we, we, we've been, we've been around and around about this issue over the the last 50, 60 years. Um, and, uh, that whole time has, has had some contests, um, in it. And a lot of times the contest has been between those in power with authority to make choices and, in many cases, those arguing for it are marginalized populations. Um, so um, that that in and of itself, that history is is very important in that history of contest. And then um, looking at you know, um, then it gets into my data, and so um, you know, it really tries to build um, some theory um, to. Uh, um, fill in a gap because there's very, very little uh, theory in this area about mm, the way patients use cannabis medically. And so um, and there's, there's, there are several other people working in this area now, and they have some great articles out and things like that. But um, I, I was really trying to create a place where some of these ideas were all together. So, um, it talks about patients deciding, um, whether or not to try cannabis and at what point they decide that and really points out, you know, I would say the beginning of the book really points out that deciding to participate in a medical cannabis program and establish a license and, um, the risks of public disclosure that that entails, um, is a different decision than a decision to try to use medical cannabis. You know, I think just little things yeah. like that are important to point out, like choosing to participate in a program and, and the decision and the risk in, involved in that is different than thinking it might work for you medically and deciding to try it without a license. Um, so, um, you know, people have very different points of view on how they uh, approached that. And then it talks about how do you discuss it with your doctor? And that was a real point of concern for lots of people. They didn't want to lose face with their, <laughs> with their physician by even bringing up the topic. Yeah. Um, 
Some of them had great interactions with their doctors. Some of them had interactions that changed over time uh, of the position of the of the of the medical professionals. And uh, others had, you know, um, some really bad interactions with doctors around this. Um, you know, uh, there was one patient whose doctor said, well, why don't you just drill a hole in your head? That's about as effective, you know, I mean, that kind of, um, yeah. you know, level of, uh, of just resistance to even um, considering it. And um, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. No, I was, no, I was just going to say that, you know, I, there's a lack of probably... Uh, medical education that's being uh, actually given to physicians when they're training uh, on on top of existing stigma. So there's sort of an informational gap, you could say. Well, exactly. And I mean, you know, there there is some literature out there about that and some calls for um, medical professionals to be educated in the endocannabinoid system as we continue to develop science around that. Uh, to be better informed. And certain doctors tend to know more about it than others because um, perhaps that's an area where there's been uh, a longer history of greater success or greater objective success, perhaps. So things like um, doctors uh, in cancer, uh, areas that deal with cancer, um, doctors in areas that deal with lots of neuropathic pain, and um, doctors in areas that deal with epilepsy may be more likely to have just heard this repeatedly from more patients or just have mm -hmm. informed themselves better based on the legacy of those particular areas being, you know, claiming that this use is helpful. But um, part of it is that, you know, that uh, social risk you take when you bring up, when you broach the topic with your, with your physician and, uh, people had different ways of trying to manage that interpersonal risk of, of being stigmatized or just being judged poorly. Um, and then, uh, the, you know, the overarching argument of the book really is about how, um, cannabis is being medicalized in the way that Peter Conrad describes in the medicalization of society, that, that, that model for medicalization, but it's incomplete. It hasn't completed the, the model and been incorporated into medicine. And it's not a linear process. It's not necessarily that it will be. Um, we can't, you know, count on the fact that that process will complete, but we can see that certain steps toward medicalization have taken place and now it's in limbo. It's, it's incomplete. It's in the middle. It's got one foot in and one foot out <laughs> of, yeah. of medicalization. And so how do you manage something that doesn't um, have legitimacy conferred through the institution of medicine. It's not incorporated into your insurance. It's not structured so that everybody accepts what category it belongs in. And, you know, so that, so what, what we ended up finding was that, you know, what happens is that that need to establish legitimacy gets kicked back to the individual in interaction with others. And they have to figure out how to create legitimacy around something mm -hmm. that institutions aren't conferring it. And so, um, you know, that that's part of what the book tries to document is how do people do that at the different stages and at which they are interacting. And, um, 
The other piece is that medicalization is, you know, tied to institutions. And so by not being completely medicalized, it's actually spread out across the three parts of the, you know, of medicine, the, the formal medicine, which is the point of getting a recommendation from a doctor. So you're interacting with the formal biomedical institutions. And then the informal medicine, which is complementary and alternative medicine, which I think you could argue that dispensaries um, and, you know, bud tenders and and people at the level of supply fit into that uh, bucket. And then the last is self-care. You know, how do people manage uh, medicine for themselves? And really, that's actually where most healthcare takes place is, um, you know, we only we only go and get care when it's beyond what we can do individually. And so um, how do people manage it in that realm? And uh, that's where um, trying to figure out what to take and how much to take and what kind, you know, and, and what method, um, all of that kind of takes place there. It is not informed by, it's typically not informed by medical professionals. And um, it may to some degree be informed by the informal sector, but a lot of it is crowdsourced with other patients or yeah. it's by self-experiment. And so um, I, I do, the irony is not lost on me that something that we consider a schedule one drug, every patient is being left to self-experiment with. If it's really as dangerous as a schedule one drug, why are we allowing everybody to uh, use it uh, to, to determine their own <laughs> routine of care. I mean, those two things are so contradictory yeah. that it's clear that there, it doesn't quite add up. Right. It's super um, paradoxical. Yeah. And so in some ways the, the, this, the incredible safety profile of cannabis is, um, is linked to some of the ways that we have, um, categorized it. Um, to its own detriment, you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, I think that's kind of an interesting piece of the, of the puzzle. And then the end of the book really talks about like, who do you tell? Who do you not tell? How do you manage the risks associated with being a medical cannabis user, which, um, you know, there are many. Um, it can just because there's a law in your state that allows you to use it doesn't mean um, there aren't other ways that you may uh, be penalized for doing so, including True. potential loss of employment, loss of your custody of your children, uh, inability to own a firearm. Um, and some of the most tragic cases are ones where people were denied organ transplants. Um, and, you know, now there are laws trying to shore up some of these areas to make them more, um, more um, or less conflictual, uh, you know, but but this is some of the complexity of having something that is not completely medicalized. That's kind of in this legal limbo. And um, I think also one of the things you find is that the choice to use not just cannabis, but most medical treatments are rarely an individual decision. They're a family decision. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, most of the time people do not only tell their family, but they discuss it with their family because it's everyone's risk. Um, and so, um, that was, that was pretty clear across the board that, um, most people had made it, made choices, um, with those closest to them around their treatment options. It's, um, 
I mean, it's so deep what you said, and um, you, you've sketched, I think, sort of uh, an excellent overview of not only the structure, but some of the research that went into the book. I guess I wanted to just press you a little bit more, if I can, Michelle, about maybe some of the the behind the scenes work or, you know, pulling back the curtain, uh, you know, what kind of activities went into the creation of the book? Well, it was certainly a labor of love in many ways. <laughs> I lived with this project yeah. for a number of years and uh, kind of a, in some ways obsessively, like I was very focused on um, making sure that it got completed and published. Um, so, you know, but, but the research, I mean, the research all took place in Colorado. Um, and of course, just involved uh, an enormous amount of reading and um, involved going to lots of events. And I really thought uh, at the time, I thought maybe my history of having worked with somebody who was a prominent activist would, I was concerned that that might I didn't want to taint my results in any way, so I didn't disclose that necessarily um, or only discussed it after I'd completed interviews with people. Um, but um, most people were uh, eager to speak with me because I was an academic and because that sounded like legitimate, legitimate <laughs> work, right? And uh, they yeah. were concerned with, uh, with um, contributing to greater legitimacy of this issue. And so that ended up being um, an important piece. And I went to, um, you know, I made sure I, I went, uh, I ended up going all over the state of Colorado <laughs> to do this research um, because I wanted to include people from different communities in different parts of the state. And uh, because different things were going on in different parts of the state. I mean, Denver and Boulder, was uh, had a had a stronger um, support, and um, if you went out to you know the western slope, there was a, a lot of um, there was still a lot of contention, uh, mm -hmm. and um, so um, it really it really depended on that. But um, I got to you know meet a lot of patients. I was also trying I was trying very hard to get the the widest range of patients that I could reach and. Uh, I, I'm, I wish I could have reached a wider diversity of, um, people in the, in midlife in, in terms of race. Um, sure. but, uh, so I wasn't able to talk about that maybe as, as much as I would have liked in, in this book. Um, but I also was concerned about trying to get people who, to make sure I, I reached people who maybe weren't model patients, you know, um, in the sense of like, you know, at the time that I started the research and now this is so long ago. And there are a couple of things in the book where at the time it just felt new, but things have moved so much that I can see that that's a certain point in time that I was doing it and what the concerns were at that moment. And one of them was really every time I would tell people what I was doing research on, people would ask me, oh, cheaters, you know, system cheaters. They were so obsessed with people trying to cheat, you know, game the licensing system as patients get in, even though they weren't paid, paid quote unquote patients, you know, to, to use it recreationally. And, uh, you know, I think it, I called it the welfare mom problem. 
Um, because it, it's just anytime there's a gatekeeper and there's a lot at stake, uh, whether you make it through that gate or not, I think, you know, um, you have to think about how that type of, uh, how that type of risk management happens. And, um, you know, if the difference is you can go to jail or, you know, or not, I mean, that's a pretty big, <laughs> that's a pretty big gatekeeping Absolutely. function. You know, no so um, I'm sure it is. It, it's different with legalization in a state that has medical, um, as opposed to at that time that was the, sort of the only, you know, the only entry point. So, um, but even the people who I spoke with who said, "Well, you know, I, I didn't get a license." I got a license because I wanted to work in the industry or something like that, which I only had a, you know, under five people who kind of had said something like that. Hmm. But then they, then they started talking about their medical conditions and they clearly qualified. Um, so it wasn't that they were undermining the system. They actually, they had every right to be a part of that system um, based on their own medical qualifications. You know? uh, so, so that was kind of an interesting, interesting piece of it. So you said you've been working on this for almost a decade. It, I mean, first of all, before I ask what's next, I mean, how does it feel to be done the book? And and I mean, are you are you um, uh, are you pleased with everything that's happened, or there's a bit of a uh, sort of relief involved? Oh yeah, I mean, there's definitely <laughs> relief in getting that, that book done. I mean, right up until you have a publisher, you don't know if you will get one. Right up until you're done, you know, writing, you don't, you just don't know. And so, um, you know, it was very uh, gratifying. Um, it was just very important to me to accomplish that, and um, you know, I'm 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 hugely relieved and and satisfied by having having done that as a personal, you know, victory <laughs> of just kind of getting it done. Um, and, the, and then this award on top of it must be the ice cream or the cherry on top of the ice cream. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, you would have thought I had just won the, you know, a, I don't know, a, a Grammy or something. I was like <laughs> floating on air. I was so excited. Um, and, um, but, but again, it's, it really, it, I'm, I'm so happy to hear you say that you found it readable. And that was one of the things that the committee said, um, that was also very satisfying because, uh, you know, of course we wanted it to be a, a, a crossover book. We wanted it to be approachable. And, you know, one of the nicest things that was said about the book was that, a beginner could, you know, follow it. I mean, my mom read it, she could follow it. And, yeah. um, and, uh, but somebody who's been, you know, working in this area for, for a long time could also find something interesting there that they hadn't thought of before. And, uh, and so that, you know, that, that range is, is, is very satisfying, <laughs> uh, that, that it could cover a lot of different um, types of readers and still hold interest. And, um, you know, I, I just, I will never till the day I die, forget some of those patients. I mean, I was really moved by their stories. They have, they had so many great things to say and interesting things to say. A few of them have since died, have passed away. 
Um, and I'm glad I could capture their stories and their voices on this issue that they cared about and include that in this work. Um, you know, that feels important. So. I 100% agree. Um, I, I'm going to ask you one last question, if you don't mind, and that's the what's happening next for you. Yeah, so... Um, well, um, we have a couple of more chapters coming out in collections. So um, I'm really excited for a chapter that we wrote that's coming out um, in probably spring of next year as a part of the Routledge Handbook of Interdisciplinary Cannabis Research. Um, it's edited by uh, Professor Josh Mizell and Dr. Dominic Corva who are the directors of the Humboldt Institute for Interdisciplinary Marijuana Research at the um, Humboldt State. And um, for that collection, um, William and I wrote a chapter about, uh, specifically about cannabis stigma. And um, it really talks about how um, there are multiple types of stigma and that um, interdisciplinary or inter, um, interpersonal stigma is only one kind of stigma. And in fact, if you look at the stories that most of the patients in our, our research had told us, the stigma that they were really concerned about, I mean, they had some concerns about interpersonal stigma, but a lot of it was actually structural stigma, mm. very similar to structural racism. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't that they were, I mean, sometimes it was that they were afraid that their friends or family would judge them, you know, negatively, but a lot of times it was people in positions of power that had the power to take things away from them, um, judging them poorly or judging them, you know, uh, and removing rights. Um, so, um, I thought that was, you know, I, I'm, I'm really excited about that, that chapter, um, coming out. And we're just finishing a chapter that's for a book from uh, um, that's being edited by Allison Fixen and Martin Harbush for a book from Paul Grave called Troubled Persons Industries. And uh, it's the only chapter in that book that's about cannabis, but we were writing about um, cannabis medicalization and mental health. And um, that's, I think, kind of one of the last frontiers in some sense about medical cannabis. It's a very interesting and controversial and convoluted area. And um, so I'm really excited about that one. And, um, you know, we're also working on some more books. So <laughs> we keep busy. Sweet. Um, yeah. So, um, um, and I also started a group on LinkedIn that's called uh, Cannabis Researchers in the Social Sciences um, that has over 80 members of uh, researchers or um, academics who are working on social science research related to cannabis because I, I mean, this book helped me feel like I, I should do things like that. And um, that, you know, part of my goal is to is to enlighten and change the conversation around this issue and to um, help establish the importance of social science on this particular area. Awesome. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. And uh, I wanted to just one last time point listeners and potential readers to the medicalization of marijuana, legitimacy, stigma, and the patient experience by Michelle Newhart and William Dolphin. It's been great talking to you. 
Thank you so much for the opportunity.